The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay. Well, this is the, the second uh, talk in a series of four on the, the Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking about a couple of elements, the first two elements of the path, the, the uh, panya, the wisdom elements of the path. Um, and I thought that uh, in order to approach that, I should probably just do a quick recap of where the Eightfold Path stands in, in the context of the four, the four truths. The four truths being the, the Buddha's formulation of the insight he had uh, on the night of his awakening, or the week of his awakening, or whenever he woke up. Um, the, the four truths are a way of construing that insight so that it's comprehensible. The first, um, the first of the elements is just the fact of unsatisfactoriness. That, that for those of us for whom satisfaction is an issue, we're going to be dissatisfied. The, the, the Buddha had tasks associated with each of, the, each of the truths. So the task associated with the first truth was to understand dukkha, understand dissatisfaction. The, suffer, the word uh, dukkha is translated often as suffering. Um, and the, the task is to understand it, and he provided a list of things that were examples of dukkha. Birth, aging, illness, death, an unpleasant bunch, um, pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair, bummers all. <laughs> yeah. not, getting, not getting what one wants, getting what one doesn't want, and losing what one has that's precious is dukkha. These are, the, these are the experiences. They're all pretty unpleasant. The Buddha said the second, with the second truth, the second uh, element is that the origin, what conditions those experiences to be dukkha is tanha, is a kind of, tanha is often translated as desire, a kind of craving. Uh, subjectively, it's experienced as um, a compulsion for pleasant experience, to survive in the future in some way, and to get rid of unpleasant stuff that might be threatening. I see them as um, almost evolutionary uh, artifacts in, in our organism. We want to survive. We want that survival to be pleasant. Uh, tanha. It's a, it's, when tanha meets the elements of dukkha, unpleasant experience, there's suffering. The third, and that, his instruction, the task with the second truth is that tanha is to be abandoned. Um, not fought with, just not taken up. When the impulse of craving, of wanting, appears, to just not take the bait. It, it appears in relation to something. We want something, something pleasant, 
something in the future. To just not take the bait. And the third truth would be the truth of or the reality, the possibility of cessation of tanha, interestingly. The idea in the, in the text is very clear that it's, he's talking about the cessation of tanha, which would then just leave those unpleasant experiences unpleasant without adding in our own resistance to them. The Eightfold Path is the way of being without dukkha. It's the path to living without dissatisfaction. It's the way of living uh, without dissatisfaction, without the kinds of frustration. And it's a, as I described last night, I think the metaphor, or last week, the metaphor I used is a basketball. It's an eightfold path. It's not a one-fold path. And it's a way of being. And as a basketball, the eightfold basketball runs something like this. It's a sphere. It's brown. It's got a lot of dimples on it. It's made of rubber. It's filled with compressed air. It weighs a couple pounds. It's about 15 inches or so across. Is that eight? It's the eightfold basketball. It all comes together as a basketball. You can't play with just the brown. You, know, you can't play with, I mean, the compressed air doesn't make any sense. So the eightfold path is an eightfold path. It is a way of being, it's an integrated path that is about the way of living without dukkha. So the elements of the path, there are eight of them. And the Buddha suggested that we regard them in sort of three clusters. The first cluster uh, would be about our understanding and our intention. Uh, view, often it's translated as right view and right intention. Let me say something about the word that's translated as right, sama. If the Eightfold Path is about the ending or the cessation of dukkha, then all of the elements, what makes something right, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, what makes them right is that they are that element in a way that attenuates dukkha. It's the understanding that leads to living without dukkha, as opposed to the delusion in which we currently walk around and <laughs> mess things up for ourselves and others. Um, so the word sama, right, means right in the sense of ending or leading to the cessation of dissatisfaction of dukkha, of suffering. And I say it's integrated because, and I'll, I'll just touch on the, the, the last elements briefly, because tonight we're going to talk about uh, samaditi, right view or right understanding, and samasankapa, uh, which is right intention the panya elements, the insight elements, the wisdom elements, but it's important to, to note, I think, that our actions all originate in our understanding. So if our understanding is diluted somehow, our actions will probably not produce what we think. We'll be surprised. Um, 
So right understanding leads to an intention that would not, uh, or that would attenuate dukkha, and speech, action, and livelihood. And because it's about dukkha, it's about suffering. What's important about the way we behave is that it not make things worse for ourselves and others, that we not add to the dukkha that's already present. If the first truth is that our experience is going to be unsatisfactory, if we care about satisfaction, then all of us are in that boat. And if we look around, there's, there's plenty of suffering to go around. There's plenty out there. And so our, our behavior should not make things worse. Speech, action, livelihood. And our practice to deepen our understanding would be the meditation elements, the last elements. Um, effort, because going with the flow is to go with tanha. That's the flow. Make it pleasant, you know, make it last, uh, regardless of what it is. Um, the mindfulness and, and the steadiness of mindfulness, right concentration. Concentration, samadhi, that is in the service of ending dukkha. So if the first task, the task for the first truth is to understand dukkha, right view would be the understanding of dukkha. And lo and behold, <laughs> right view is classically uh, defined as understanding the Four Noble Truths and sometimes understanding the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactory, and the quality of not-self, not non-entityness. So what do you have to understand in order to understand dukkha? Well, let me just say one other thing. Of course, what I'm doing tonight is, is presenting, sharing my view uh, of the truths and the, and the path. And my hope, of course, is that it's, that it's helpful to you. Uh, but we are going to construct a view, a perspective, an understanding. So, right view has to do, or view or understanding has to do with all of our understanding. It's, it's rooted in our perception of things. You know, as part of our, as part of our neural activity, the brain represents its experience to itself, right? So it's got symbolic representation. You go over the bump and then you see the sign that says that was a bump. It's an old Bill Cosby joke. <laughs> that was a bump. Um, you know, the brain, the mind, represents its experience to itself. It makes sense to me in terms of evolution. We've got this incredible computer that can be used to help us survive. Well, it does so by abstracting and working with the map. Our view, our understanding is the map we have, the, the conceptualization we have of the way things are. We often, we often substitute that map for direct experience with the present moment. There's a, I'm reading in the, in the middle of reading a book called The Flamethrowers, and the, the 
heroine is uh, a motorcycle rider and she sets off across the Nevada desert on Highway 80 going east with her map taped to the gas tank. And she notices that the faster she goes, the more she pays attention to the map and less to the scenery as it's going by. But our understanding includes all kinds of speculative things, you know. I mean, we, we haven't experienced black holes personally. I don't think. Maybe. I wouldn't have noticed. I missed it. But we have, we have lots of understanding about the nature of the world, the nature of ourselves. But right view has to do right view in this context has to do with understanding the origin of, of our dissatisfaction with the world. So what do you have to understand to understand dukkha? I was thinking about this and I thought, well, you need to understand vedna, which is the Buddha's word for feeling tone, the difference between pleasant and unpleasant experience. Pleasant experience is generally pretty satisfying unless we somehow think we should not be having a good time. Uh, unpleasant experience, well, we sort of don't like it. Unless some of you have a particular fetish, we uh, are, are pretty much, we wake up in the morning and we don't say, remember that stuff that I hated at the restaurant last night? I'm getting more of it. <laughs> we just don't. <laughs> you know, we, we, look for, we look for pleasant stuff. So, the feeling tone is important, that, that list of things in the, first, in the first truth. Birth, unpleasant, you know? The story is we were all crying first, at, first, first moment. Birth, aging, illness, death, pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair. You know, these are unpleasant things. Unpleasantness when met with the tendencies to want things to be pleasant. So we need to understand Vedana. And we need to understand Tanha. Tanha is that craving, that desire for things to be different. And then, of course, the three characteristics are important. Anicca and Anatta. Anicca is translated as uh, impermanence, so the three characteristics would be impermanence, anicca, unsatisfactoriness or suffering, dukkha, and emptiness, anatta, insubstantiality. Anicca is important because you understand impermanence even when things are good. If everything lined up perfect, just the way you wanted it, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you ever could get it, just perfect. So, you know, that's, that's, a, that's not even a slippery slope. You know. So, in each, it's important to understand that, that part of the first truth about losing what is, what is cherished. You know, we all think, yeah, we, we understand Anicca, but then we go, Where was, where's my pen? It was my favorite pen. Where did it go? And we you know, even though we sort of understand it, we know about it, but the trick is to know it directly. And then anatta, which is often translated as not-self, which um, 
This basically is about emptiness. It's about the insubstantiality. If, if everything is impermanent, if everything is, in ch- is changing, then there's nothing that, then anything that seems like a thing is just a snapshot. This is a piece of paper, but it's just a snapshot. 20 years ago, these molecules weren't in paper, and they won't be in paper at some point in the future. Some things change really fast, and we can see them, and some things take longer than our lifetimes to change, and they seem relatively permanent. But everything is in motion, from the cosmos to the most insubstantial, evanescent, subatomic particle. And so nouns are things, they're nouns, but they only exist in language. Everything is in process, everything is in motion, everything is verbing anyway, if you, if you want to make it that. So Anatta is just, there's nothing substantial to cling to. The second, you know, tanha, clinging, wanting, that craving, needing, needing things to be better, needing things to be pleasant. So, so there's nothing to hold on to. It's like trying to hold on to water, trying to grab water, because everything is processed. And if it's not moving, if it's not changing fast enough, we certainly are. Robert Rauschenberg, um, an American uh, painter from the last century. I think he lived just till recently. But he used to say that uh, you can't look at my paintings twice. It was sort of the opposite of, I think it was Democritus who said you can't step in the same river twice. He's saying once you've seen it, you're different. At least you've seen it. So you won't be seeing it the same way. So you can't look at it the same way. Everything is, is constantly in change. So understanding dukkha is an important part of right view or of the view that will, under, that, will, that will lead to the attenuation of dissatisfaction because <laughs> unless you understand how it works, it's kind of hard to get rid of. And of course, we don't like it, so what we try to do is push it away rather than understand it. Um, and one of the things to understand is that because it's about suffering, the ethical components are essential. The elements of right speech, right action, right livelihood are not there accidentally. They're an integral part of the, of the Eightfold Path. They can't, they can't really be, uh, be separated. It's, not, it's the way to behave. Um, so view is the understanding we have, and it's rooted in our perception of things. So when we perceive solid things, when we perceive concepts, even abstract things like democracy or justice, um, there's, a, there's a tendency towards, uh, the Buddha said there's a tendency toward distortion. And the distortions are to see in the impermanent something that could be permanent, or that is permanent, something stable in what is inherently unstable, unstable. And that includes our relationship to the things. It's to see things as potentially satisfying when nothing has the capability of providing satisfaction, because if it ever did, it would change. (laughs) 
and to see insubstantiality or to see substantiality, some essence, essential quality in what is essentially just totally evanescent, trans transitory. How should we think of this fleeting world, a flash of lightning in a, in a summer cloud? And the fourth distortion is an interesting one. It's to see beauty in what is not beautiful. And I, I wrangled with that for a long time until I came to an understanding that it's like sweetness. Sugar is not sweet. Sugar is just sugar. Sweet has to do with our interaction with it. When we put it on our tongue, it tastes sweet. If it's just sitting there, how sweet is it? It's not a quality of sugar. It's a quality of our interaction with it. And the same with beauty, to recognize the things that move us are moving us. And they, they, they remain um, what they are. And those distortions lead us to act in ways that, that make it worse for ourselves. So if we think we can make ourselves happy by getting what we want, that's the way we'll spend our time, chasing first this and then that. That's pretty much our strategy. <laughs> and I guess as Dr. Phil might say, how's that working for you? So views, views are really important because you can't be without a view. You won't be without. And, and if you don't, you know, one, one of the Zen patriarchs is, is uh, my recollection is one of the Zen patriarchs said, and I think I read it in a book, so you know it has to be true. Um, he said, if you understand something, all you have is a concept. But if you don't understand something, you have ignorance. If you, don't have, if you don't understand something, I, I, I think, did I tell the story of my opening the hood of a car last week? I was, when I was 16, all of my friends, not my friends, people at the school I went to, they were all into cars. And I was sort of more into uh, photography and astronomy. I thought, well, what's the deal? How, how hard could cars be? Because I looked around and I thought, well, cars can't be that hard. So I, my, my, a friend of mine and I went out and we opened the hood on my parents' car and we looked in and had no idea what we were looking at. It was just a lump of dirty metal. I could pick out a wire. I could have said wire. I had concept for wire and fan. And I thought fan belt was pretty good too because I'd heard about that. So I could say, but otherwise it was just a lump of dirty metal. I, had, I couldn't pick out a distributor cap or a, even a dipstick for crying out loud. Um, if you don't have the concepts, you don't, you don't know what you're looking at. One of my uh, friends had a, a Tibetan teacher who was learning English. And he said, you know, I, I didn't realize how many emotions I had until I learned English. <laughs> because, you know, we, we obsess over, over our emotional states and not so much in, in the Tibetan language. But, we, but, the, but the language and the concepts allow us to discriminate our experience, to point to our experience. So right view is important because it means the understanding that leads to the cessation of dukkha and we're going to have a view. You know, it's part of what our organism does to help us help survive and get through. It's been pretty successful, but it doesn't lead to peace of mind. 
So there's one other, one other part about this view thing, which is, or this understanding thing, which is about how you hold the view, how you hold the understanding. There's a sutta called the, um, the sim, it's got the simile of the sna snake in it. I'm going to read it because it's, it's, I really enjoy the opening lines. Buddha says, suppose monks, a man wants a snake. I just think that's, you know. Suppose he wants a snake, looks for a snake, goes in search of a snake. He then sees a large snake, and when he is grasping its body or its tail, the snake turns back on him and bites his hand or arm or some other limb of his. And because of that, he suffers death or deadly pain. And why? Because of the wrong grasp of a snake. I've never wanted a snake, but I get the idea. Similarly, monks, similarly, monks, there are here some foolish men who study the teachings. Having studied it, they do not wisely examine the purpose of those teachings. To those who do not wisely examine the purpose, these teachings will not yield insight. They study the teachings only to use it for criticizing or debating or refuting others. They do not experience uh, they do not experience the true purpose for which they ought to study the teachings. To them, the teachings are wrongly grasped, and they bring harm and suffering for a long time. And why? Because of their wrong grasp of the teachings. I remember, I sat in on a conversation once in a Dharma setting, sort of like this, and the conversation went, you don't have a self. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do have a self. No, a Buddha says you don't have a self. You know, and they battered at each other, and then the poor woman who had herself took herself away and never came back. Um, that's the wrong, you know, it's the wrong, there's a, there's, a, there's a great line where the Buddha says, those, um, those people who cling to their opinions usually go around annoying others. It's in the Sutta Napata. So the trick here is about how do you hold, how do you hold this, this view and understanding in a way that doesn't make it, make it um, send the person off to, uh, with, with their self to another world. Um, I think, for me, I've, I've, I've solved this by thinking of the, of the distinction between a metaphysical and a phenomenological approach to view. So the phenomenological approach would be an approach of pretty much pure subjectivity, to regard our experience as it is subjectively and to be able to talk about it. Um, you know, but we're talking about our experience and what it, what it feels like, what it looks like, um, what arises and passes in our experience. The metaphysical question is, what is going on, really? Really, what's going on? What are things? What's happening? You know, independent of my perception, what is, what's really here? And so there's an intention here to somehow be objective, separate, Something real, independent. What is? What are things really? And I guess the Buddha would say the middle path here. You know, yes, there is some stuff that's not uh, that's separate from, independent from our experience, but we can only know our experience. 
So I find that if, that, that if, I, if I intentionally take a, a, a phenomenological perspective, in that, view, in that view of pure subjectivity, even objectivity is a subjective experience. What is it that we think is really true? What do we think is objective? What is it that we think exists as it, it does, independent of our existence? That's a subjective uh, knowing. And, if, and for me, if, if uh, I, I sort of have this phrase in my mind that goes, no clinging necessary, just recognize it as your own. This is my view, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> um, but to make it a claim for other people? Not necessary. No clinging necessary. Clinging to the way things really are. You don't have a self. I do have a self. Not necessary. The right view is knowing, is knowing how to live without taking tanha's bait. To cling to it. And when it comes to views and believe in and, uh, and uh, understanding, clinging is believing. We believe things. We believe the universe. I had a great little exchange with a cashier once during a time when I was being irritated by uh, the cashiers who say, how are you today? You know, I tried, I, I, I struggled with that for quite an embarrassingly long time. And at one point I was using, I, I was saying, well, I, this, this young woman said to me, how are things going? And I said, things, I think they're looking up. She said, oh, good, you're not one of these end of the world types. I said, no, 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 no. I said, the universe has been around about 13 billion years. It probably has, so much. She, oh, it hasn't been around 13 billion years. <laughs> I live in a university town. I thought she sort of thought it was 18 billion years, but she thought it was 7,000, and she wanted me to know that uh, my understanding was wrong. Well, I embarrassed myself by referring to astronomical measurements, and that didn't work. (coughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) people... People cling to their beliefs, particularly if they don't know anything, if they have no experience. You know, people kill each other over ideas that they've made up. You know? And we all see that out there. They blow themselves up. You know? So it's not, a, it's not a trivial thing. Now let me just say one more thing about view and understanding, because the understanding that is most pernicious is the, is the, under, is the view of self. It's the thought of self, and to mistake self for more than a, being more than a view, more than an understanding. And it can be a summary, it can be a, uh, a memory, it can be pattern seen, it can be descriptive, but it is description, it's in language. But the notion of self, it's from the notion of self, from the understanding of me and mine, leads to needing more, greed, Irritation at what's not the way it should be, and ill will towards people who are not being the way I would have written them in the script. And to the delusion that we're going to live forever, one way or another. Because we don't don't like this grand impermanence a whole lot. 
So we'll, we'll project heaven or multiple lives or something. We're going to live forever. So the sense of self is the source of greed, hatred, greed, ill will, and delusion. And the second of the elements is intention. It's our intention. Intention is really important. Um, uh, Reginald Ray said everything depends. Well, not that he's not the only one. Intention is what we live with. So right intention would be the intentions that don't make things worse for ourselves and others. The intentions that attenuate dukkha for ourselves and for others. So instead of the unskillful int intentions, which would be greed, ill will, and delusion. Delusion is really an intention, I think, in, in my view. No. It's, 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 uh, it's an intention not to look at the way things are. I was reading a story in the, in the Times a couple weeks ago, and they were talking about how doctors die. I think I mentioned this last week. Maybe I didn't. How doctors die, and they all find their way to hospice pretty quick. And the hospice director said, uh, well, the purpose is to uh, provide the highest quality life for the remaining time. And I thought, gee, that's, everybody is in hospice. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, but we don't like to think of it that way. You know, we don't, we don't uh, and we, we like to think that it's satisfaction is possible. That's what we're struggling for, to attain our dream. But those, those, those intentions are, are not particularly skillful. They lead us to, they set us up for disappointment and frustration. Classically, the, 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 um, the correct, the intentions, the right intentions, the, the intention that leads to the, that doesn't lead to the furtherance of dukkha would be non-greed, non-ill will, and seeing clearly wisdom, insight. Often it's translated as, you know, metta, but it's actually just non-greed, not greed, just the absence of the unskillful intentions. Renunciation of those impulses. So renunciation is described often as the as right intention, and it's not renunciation. You don't have to push away that creme brulee. I mean, no need. If it shows up at the table, dig in. <laughs> no. um, but the impulses to spend your time trying to craft pleasant experience through ambition or some kind of desire, we can spend hours you know, trying to figure out how to uh, put together a 15-second acknowledgement by a boss or a colleague. Or, you know, and we can spend a lot of time trying to craft, which is not a particularly pleasant way to spend your time. You know, and the acknowledgement might have come along anyway, or maybe something better if you've been paying attention. So the renunciation, the abandonment, not pushing away, but the abandonment, just not taking the bait Just not taking the bait. Of tanha. You know, when those impulses 
the need to have things pleasant, to have things different. Now there's a difference between craving pleasure and relief. You know, Ajahn Amra once was asked a question about sitting and discomfort during sitting. He was asked, you know, I sit there and I'm sitting with the pain and sitting with the pain. Well, it really hurts. And he said, well, if, what you're, if, if you go to change your position and you make the decision to change your position because you're just uncomfortable and you don't like discomfort, well, you know, sit with it a little more. Explore. Use this as an opportunity to explore your relationship to unpleasant experience. But at a certain point, if it becomes... You know, and it's a judgment call. You know, if the if the the move to change your position would come out of compassion for for the suffering, for the unpleasantness, that's um, a different intention. So the same action, shifting your position, could be done for different reasons, out of compassion or out of discomfort, out of preference for the pleasant, or out of Compassion for the for the suffering. The first retreat I ever went on was a was a, uh, a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh. There was a woman who was lying down during the retreat, and I we didn't talk for the length of the retreat. When we, when we could speak again, it turned out I found from her that she was not able to sit because she had sat through the pain at an intensive uh, Zen session and had done some kind of neurological damage. And was no longer able. So you know, uh, and it's not unusual. Uh, Joseph tells a story about how he was hurrying back to lead a uh, uh, sitting at the IMS, and he stepped in a hole near the lake at IMS, and he twisted his ankle and his knee. And but he he was the teacher. He went back in and he sat. And 45 minutes later, they had to lift him up because he couldn't <laughs> unfold his legs. So, so there's, a, there's tending to ourselves with compassion, being kind and compassionate with ourselves, and then there's wanting it to be really pleasant. So those, diff- those are different intentions. In fact, that, that intention of compassion is something that would be cultivated. So the Brahma-viharas, which are described as... Uh, the awakened states, or this is how I understand them, as the awakened states. Equanimity. Full engagement with things as they, as they occur, as they arise, as they present themselves in our experience, the pleasant and the unpleasant, without resisting and without clinging, but engaging fully, meeting, meeting the experience of others with friendliness, compassion if they're suffering, and with, with mudita, with joy, if they're experiencing pleasantness and joy. And those are not particularly, they don't get you anything um, except themselves. So, so right intention shows up as both the renunciation element, the letting go of the impulses of greed and ill will and delusion, and to cultivate the, the, um, the impulses of friendliness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. 
You can see how the, the understanding of the nature of dukkha leads to the intention to abandon the unsatisfactory uh, impulses, the ones that cause more suffering. And to cultivate the, and to cultivate the, the impulses which um, the Brahma Viharas, the, the states that lead to uh, awakening, or that are the states of awakening, and they lead to right speech, action, and livelihood. So, there, so the intention is acted out, is played out in speech, action, livelihood. And next week we'll talk about um, those elements. Uh, we'll focus on them. One other, one other thing that, uh, that I might say is that the tendency to want pleasant experiences, it's not that the pleasant experience if there's anything wrong with it. So I say, dig into the creme brulee if it shows up. And you can even order it if it's on the menu to show up, not a problem. Um, the problem is that if, if one prefers one's experience pleasant, and one really is wedded to that preference, then when it shows up unpleasant, not only is it unpleasant, but you're not getting what you want. And you know what? My experience when I don't get what I want is irritation. Yeah. Who ordered this? Yeah. Fifty below. Oh no. <laughs> That's cold. I've been out in it. It hurts. So the panya element, panya being the, the word that's translated often as wisdom or insight, seeing clearly, uh, looking into ourselves and seeing our understanding, studying our understanding, and, our, and the intentions that arise from that, and that then play out in, uh, in our behavior. And they play out in our practice. How much do we practice? It depends on how important we think it is. So I, I, I sometimes think that right understanding is the whole ball game. There's a the Buddha talks about being uh, awakened through wisdom. It's one of the ways of uh, awakening. Um, so let me just take uh, a couple of minutes and see if there are questions or puzzlements or irritations about right, right view, please. So while we're waiting for the technology, what was your what was your question?
finding uh, a place to where this is okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, some things may not be okay. They may be very unhappy and sad. There's a lot in this world, if you haven't noticed, that's really sad. And often we just don't want to feel that. And we don't want to feel it so badly that we will flail around in various ways and make things worse. Um, but the unpleasantness is there. And we may not, you know, we're not able to do something about unpleasantness all the time. And so in that case, you know, I find compassion for ourselves and for the ones who are experiencing that. Sometimes people find it difficult to be compassionate to themselves and uh, because they don't feel worth it or worthy or whatever. But you know, then feel compassion because you can't feel compassion. You know, there's, there's some room for tenderness uh, in the experience of of pain and suffering, which comes with, you know, it's the first noble truth. Life is going to have this stuff in it. And how can we relate to it um, most skillfully without adding to, adding to the, the, uh, the dissatisfaction? And I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about the drought. Seems to be our share of climate change, doesn't it? So just realize that, yeah, this is happening. Yeah. It is happening, right? Yeah. Yeah. And What do I do with my wanting it to not happen? You know, I, I, I just think of the way I... I deal with my granddaughter frequently, who's six. I don't want to, and I go, well, I'm so sorry. And you hold her, and you wait until it passes. You know, provide what comfort that you can. And kindness, and, and you know, compassion is about making it less unpleasant. And one, the one thing we can do is not add more unpleasantness. If we do that, if we take away our own resistance, our own antagonism, our own anger, then we've at least made it better by that much. Any, anything else about right view? All clear? Okay, I will see you next week, I hope.